Welcome to Intelligogy with Tracy Browder, where together we will disrupt educational normalcy. I'd like to thank you for joining us at Monday Matters, and I say us because I have Marlena Gross-Taylor here with me today. Good morning, Marlena. Good morning, Tracy. I am so excited, as always, to be on your podcast. I know. This has been a joy. I'm going to hate when our time comes to an end. You'll have to come back. Yes, yes. (laughs) So friends, we would encourage you to listen to several of the other episodes with Marlena Gross-Taylor. We spend a lot of time together covering five hard truths that the global pandemic COVID-19 has exposed. So those are really rich and powerful conversations. Today, however, is not part of that thread. Um, our, Our country, our world is experiencing some Racial tension at its highest, Um, there have been quite a few uh, Black male deaths associated with police brutality. And whenever I say that and open that door, it's just like education and every other um, facet of life that the, the, the men and women in blue are amazing people that protect and serve and keep us safe and do the things that we that we're not trained to do, may even be fearful to do. They do the hard things. They keep us safe and they have families that they have to go home to. So we celebrate our men and women in blue. And whenever a few make bad choices, it, 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 it kind of taints the whole organization. And that's unfortunate. So as we delve into this conversation, it's important to me to say that we have full respect for our men and women in blue, but we are going to um, not even focus on the situations. We get enough of that on the news. Marlena and I today want to get really, really personal and intimate. I've been sharing a lot that this this is our every day. What I mean by that is um, I am a Black, happy, beautiful woman who is married to a Black six-foot-tall man, and we have two Black sons. And so I'm going to stop and let Marlena tell about her family, but our conversation today is meant to let you into our homes to explain what happens and and why we have to have the conversations we have to have with our sons. That's why we're here and we're hoping to inspire change to help you look through different lenses. We've had amazing friends reach out with support and simply say, I had no idea. And that's honest. So everybody is in different spaces and processing things differently, but we are with open arms talking and having conversations. And that's where it starts. So Marlena, will you share um, a little bit about your family to help us set up this conversation. Sure, sure. Thank you again, Tracy, for having me. Um, I have uh, experienced many of the same things that you mentioned, different friends reaching out to check in, calling, not just messaging, but um, you know, calling, checking in because of recent events. And I so appreciate that. And I appreciate their desire, especially from my, my white colleagues of, you know, not only how are you doing, but how do I use this opportunity to help my students understand 
what is really happening and what other kids that may not look like them experience, what are those conversations and things of that nature. So um, just a background for me, and I'll, and I'll actually plug in my blog. I recently wrote a blog post called Never Dim Your Light, and mm-hmm. it is a great, uh, I think, gives a great historical background as to how I function, how my family functions, um, and how I was raised and how I tried to raise my kids with some of those same values um, and how I just tried to do things a little bit differently. So if you haven't read that, please, I encourage you to go to my blog and read the Never Dim Your Light. But in the Never Dim Your, Dim Your Light, I talk about my family, my family makeup. Um, I'm from Southern Louisiana, um, Deep South, and um, my family is truly part of that whole melting pot of of a society um, of Louisiana is very typical. Um, I have cousins that are look like me or darker than I am. And I have some that are that are white and some that are so mixed that they're biracial or they look white. I am all of those things all mixed in together. So the perfect pot of gumbo, if you will, in Louisiana. Um, <laughs> I, and I say this because it's very important, I think, to understand where you're from. And that's what I talk about in Never Dim My Light. And that's what I've had to go back to even during these times. Um, so just really quickly, my um, on my mom's side, both of her grandmothers were full-blood Native Americans, um, one Blackfoot, uh, and the other, was, um, the other was Cherokee. So I have that going on there. And then... And they married black men. And then on my dad's side, my dad's parents, his dad, um, his grandfather, my my grandfather's father, who I actually was alive and I remember Daddy Will. Um, Daddy Will was a white man and he married a black woman. And there are some things that happened there in the South that he had to do that most people would be like, oh, my gosh, are you serious? Like that happened. Um so when you look at me and you look at my family and you look at my boys, we're a, a wide variety of colors, but we also have some of those cultural pieces from those different groups, whether it's Native American, white, and then Black culture as well. Um, that's all intermingled. But even with all of that and knowing that, I think most of all, what I tell my boys is you have to understand how you're perceived in the world. You have to understand how you're perceived in the world. So no matter how light you are, how dark you are, you're going to be perceived as a, as a black male. And that's, that's, you need to understand that. And then what goes along with that perception and be prepared to handle those, those different things. So we have had what I like to call our black on black talks. And there have been some mm-hmm. tough conversations around uh, race and inclusion and, uh, and all those things that we've seen in the news with the violence. Um, we've had those conversations because they have grown up being the only one um, in their class, the only black person in their class or one of a few in their class or school, even in the South. So where I felt that, you know, once you reach a certain level of success and achievement and socioeconomic status that I could protect my boys from some of the, the ugly truths of, uh, of racism and discrimination in this country. And I still would do it again if I had to repeat that. I can't protect them for everything, from everything. And so making sure they're equipped with the skills and the resources that they need so they can navigate the rest of their lives successfully and, and teach my 
grandkids, not right now, but whenever my grandkids <laughs> come along, teach them what, what they need to learn, uh, what they need to learn as well. You know, so. It's a lot, I know. It, it, it is, it is. <laughs> You may wonder, like, is she trying to get her words together? No, it's not that at all. There's just so much. Um, my my 14-year-old during the COVID-19 shelter in place, he asked, he, he's, he plays football, but he conditions um, running track. And mm-hmm. track should be his thing because he's fast as a little airplane, but (laughs) he asked during the shelter in place if he could run in the neighborhood to condition. And I said, baby, you can't run. And he kind of looked at me with his head to the side, like, huh? And I said, it's, it's, it's not safe for you to just go and run in the neighborhood. And he got it, but he didn't get it. And then just a few weeks later, um, we lost Ahmad Aubrey, who was running in his neighborhood and 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 gunned down, not by police officers, just by citizens, vigilantes. So that resonated with my son on a completely different level because he was asking more than once. He wanted to get out and run so that he could be a better athlete, so that he wasn't just sitting playing video games, so that he could better himself and be ready to go back to whatever form that school looks like when we return. And I had to say no. I had Mm -hmm. to say no because... I'm not with you and you're a threat when you're out there. And if you're running, you look like you stole something. Right. That, that makes me angry. Mm -hmm. And when, when, when what happened to Ahmaud Aubrey happened, I call my son, that very son who was pleading with me to run in the neighborhood. I sat him down next to me. I turned on the news and you could just see, I can't even explain. I, I'm sick at the stomach to explain what I saw, how my son looked. He realized in a moment that that could have been me. Right. So right. The, and, and go, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying, you know, that conversation that you had with your son is, is really ironic. Um, just last week, um, my nephew, who I raised, he is he turned 26 last week. And so um, he came up from Nashville to uh, to Annapolis, where we all um, where we all were for the Memorial Day holiday. And um, and we it's Annapolis. This is in Maryland, but this is Annapolis. So not Baltimore. We're not in the cut, anything like that. Um, and he wanted to go walking at night to talk to his girlfriend, um, Mm -hmm. as we finished our day, you know, our our Memorial day celebration and he's 26 years old. And I told him, I was like, I'm sorry, you can't, you just can't Mm -hmm. do that because I can't take the chance. Mm -hmm. I can't take the chance of, you know, something happening to you because then I'm going to be in jail. Cause I'm, I just yeah. hear in my heart, you know? And so mm-hmm. we had that conversation and, and the boys, we all had the conversation around that. 
um, you know, what you can do, what you can't do. And, and even having that conversation with my oldest son's girlfriend uh, here visiting with us, um, and she's white, and it was interesting for her to, to kind of learn more about, you know, what what she has to, what we have to face. And then if mm-hmm. she and my son are to, and I think that's, that's my future daughter-in-law and she knows it, <laughs> just some of the things, like if you, you know, if y'all make this a thing and you, and you have a family, you're going to have biracial kids that will be viewed as black and mm-hmm. you're going to have to be ready to, to have these types of conversations, you know? So it was a very eye-opening holiday. I'd like to say it was just full of fun and barbecues and we did do that and swimming, but you know, that, that, that hard truth came into play too, that we had to address. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that brings us to a, a different piece of this conversation and we'll, we'll kind of bounce around a little bit, but um, my sister is married to an amazing man who happens to be Caucasian. So um, definitely a blended family and a blended dynamic there. Um and he also happens to be a sheriff, so really a different, and in Alabama. <laughs> so oh, lots goodness. of layers. Yes, yes, yeah. lots of layers to that. And um, so just the awareness and the conversations that we can have in our family in a safe space to create awareness. And then the Caucasians or even other races, they, they see in real time what we're dealing with. So, so they have an insight that most people don't. And a lot of my um, Caucasian friends have been acknowledging that they have privilege and they feel sick at the stomach about that. So those are the people to me that have good hearts and want to be a part of the change and are disgusted at the fact that privilege is a thing, um, that, that privilege is the separating line. So, um, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that these tragedies are not in vain, that conversations like the ones we're talking about will continue to happen, that us being so vulnerable and so transparent and so open with the mass public, um, Mm -hmm. that, that we are sharing and helping people look through a different lens. So with that being said, we could talk all day about the conversations we have to have in our homes. Um, I want to kind of jump in and connect that to school, but before I do, I I just really want to kind of bring listeners even closer. Um, and, and, that's where I have a hard time with my thoughts. Cause in my head, I'm like, share this. No, don't share it, share this. And yes, I'm going to share it. Um, I, I had an episode of conversation with my family. Um, and so that's a different episode It's called it's our everyday. And I would encourage you to listen to it, but you know, we can walk down the street uh, just on a Saturday afternoon, having fun and, I'm enjoying my family, but my eyes have to be wide open for other things. And when when they are, I see, you know, some women and not just Caucasian of other ethnicities too, clutch their purse a little tighter when they see these black men walk toward them or, or move their child over and kind of really wrap them in their arms. Um, and so 
we're just seen as such a threat. Um, you know, I've, we've been in restaurants and um, we're sitting at a table and sometimes, and it could be for any other reason that somebody says, no, not this table, that table, because I have my preferences too. But in, in terms of, I don't like to sit close to a restroom in a restaurant. Right, right, right. So, so people have their preferences and you have that right. But when you look through the lenses that we look through, um, I shared on the It's Our Everyday episode, two instances, and, and there are many more where I've been shopping and I've been watched by a store clerk. And in one situation, she watched me and followed me everywhere I went and she missed um, a Caucasian stealing and putting some things in her bag. I happened to mm-hmm. see it and I pointed her to that lady. Um, There's another situation where a security guard followed me everywhere I went in the store. Um, so when we say it's our every day, it mm-hmm. is truly our every day. I could share so many other stories just mm-hmm. with my family alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but Marlena, let's... <sighs> Here's where I struggle. Here's what hurts me the most um, is we're having all of these conversations in our homes. But like you, my oldest son was one of maybe three to five black people in his school when the school first opened. Mm -hmm. And the conversations we have to have in our home the teachers and other students don't even understand. When the Botham Johns, when when the George Floyds, when the Ahmaud Aubreys, when the um, when all of those people's lives who have been taken are shared on the news, mm-hmm. the majority of the population can continue to go to soccer practice, can continue to go out to dinner, can go out and play basketball. And we are in our homes having conversations about, son, this is why you cannot just go out and run. Son, you're not safe in your own home. Um, Right, right. You know, those are the conversations we're having. But then our sons and our beautiful black daughters can go into school the next day and I can walk down the hall in school. And every day there's not a day that goes by several times a day where educators have our young black men in the hall talking to them about behavior. Mm -hmm. So we're having these conversations and we're trying to lift them up and encourage them and, and talk to them about what's happening in the real world. And then they go into school and that cycle is continued where they're pulled out, singled out, no matter what the behavior, is there a way to talk to them in the classroom? Is there a way to build those relationships? Is there a way to give them leadership roles? Is there a way to tap into what they like and celebrate that and, and mesh that into their learning? Um, <sighs> yeah, it you know, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I I hear you and everything that you're saying. I've been struggling and I'm I'm gonna release that this week. Uh I've been working on a blog post around just current events and again how to to make it actionable, right? So everyone that reads it can have a better understanding if they need that of why why the the protests and things are happening, but to understand like what that everyday experience is like. It took me a really long time to write my blog post of never dim your light 
um, because that was that was really just my journey of um, of coming to that same realization and, and feeling empowered again to be who I am and not dimming my light to make um, other people feel better, particularly dominant culture, as Robin D'Angelo refers to uh, white culture in her book White Fragility. Um, but I am. I will be posting that. I will be posting that in the next couple of days because we do need to take action. We can't just post about it or talk about it. We need conversations to happen with different groups of people um, because they do need to understand folks that are not, um, you know, black or. And I, you can tell I'm from the south because I still say black white. I'm, I'm not from Africa, and I know that's a politically correct term, but that's right. how I grew up. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, we need non-Blacks to understand what this is. And I think what's encouraging about all the different protests and things that are happening right now is that those conversations, we're forced to have them right now. And they need to happen. My only fear is that they need to happen in, in a certain way where if you're white, you don't feel guilty for being white either, but you understand exactly. what are ways you can take action because... I think Martin Luther King said this, you know, it, and injustice anywhere, you know, affects us all, right? No matter what color that you are. And we have not had these conversations around uh, race really since Martin Luther King was alive. Um, mm -hmm. I really feel that once that the Civil Rights uh, Act was signed, we just felt like, okay, we're done with that part. We can move on. But as a person of color, we never could move on because it was still an issue. So we need to have these conversations. We need to give resources to um, to all of our, our white colleagues in education as well as just our neighbors and, and everyone so they can understand what it's like because the history books didn't teach what um, what that experience was and even what it is now. So we have to make sure that we're doing that. Um, one of the things that I would say that I feel it should be mandatory reading for all educators, truly, is um, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. I think that is an excellent book um, that articulates not only the science behind it and the research behind it, but what, why we are where we are today. And this is before you know, the, the incidents of the last couple of weeks, but why we are where we are and how can we move forward. And she definitely brings out through the research that she's done and, and research of some others of how this has always been a part of it. And we have to acknowledge it. It's kind of like a, was it Alcoholic Anonymous, right? Like the AA meetings, you have to first acknowledge mm -hmm. that you have a problem. And so mm -hmm. in her book, she advocates that same thing. You have to acknowledge that race is an issue here. Um, and that and that we have to understand that deeply. We can't be afraid to talk about it, but we have to have the right training and protocols in place to have a, a conversation around it, particularly in our schools, because I think that's where it starts uh, in our schools. Also, when I think about, um, and I was just having this conversation with a dear friend about like having, um, with everything being closed down because of COVID and how our kids... Um, in our schools that are used to taking uh, exchange programs overseas, how they can't do that. I feel like we need to have that exchange program right here in the United States from, mm -hmm. for our kids, from those up North to come down South and, and vice versa to understand like what it's like and how different it is. Cause it's easy for us to grow up in our self-contained bubbles 
and think the whole world is like how our current experience is. And it's not, it's not. And so many of our kids can't leave their current bubble for lots of reasons or don't want to leave. And so they have no idea what other groups of people are feeling, particularly, um, I would say, particularly our black kids and, and black Americans. Um, you know, that, that whole awareness piece about, um, the exchange student process, I, I, this is always in my head and I never say it. So I'm, I'm going to be bold and say it, um, because that's part of the problem too, is sometimes we as black people, I can speak for myself. Sometimes I don't want to go there. Sometimes I don't want to say the things on my heart because I don't want to appear. I feel like if I spoke up, I would appear as radical. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's not radicalness. It's just me sharing my reality and, and what's on my heart. And so where I want to go and what I've hesitated with saying for so long is I want whites and people of other races to ask themselves, not not this question, not how many black friends you have, because if you're counting and you're saying, I have this many <laughs> black friends, I'm good. Right? <laughs> that is so not it, friends. And if you're doing that, please talk to me and let's have a conversation um, to help bring some awareness. But how different are your relationships with black people versus people of other races? Um, you know, are, are, are black people welcome in your home? If mm-hmm. they use your restroom, do you feel like you have to go clean everywhere they were? Mm-hmm. And um, this is really hard for me to say and talk about. And some people might be shocked that that is a thing, but it is a thing. Um, it, it's real. And you ask me where I've seen it. I, I've seen it in restaurants. I can name so many different places um, where it's kind of like this. And I, there's a whole different conversation. I shared it on my It's Our Everyday mm-hmm. um, uh, podcast episode about an experience that my son had at a football game. And I won't go into detail about that because you can check it out on the other episode. But what I will say is his team played a lot of wealthy white schools Mm -hmm. and they love a great football game. They love the fight. They love the energy, Mm -hmm. but it's got to stop right there. Um, We, you know, don't, they feel threatened. Um, There was one game where the white parents created kind of a wall of security with their cheerleaders. Um, Guys, we can tell y'all some stories. (sighs) But we just need you to understand and know what our Black people are facing every single day and the weight that they carry around, the weight that our kids carry around. So when when our Black children have the highest referral rate have the highest in-school and out-of-school suspension rate, we're adding to the problem. 
we we are just as guilty as some of the worst case scenarios. Seriously, we are because we're we're isolating, we're separating, we're ostracizing instead of embracing, celebrating, learning, merging. We we've got to do better in our school system with our black boys and our black girls, but specifically our black males, we have got to do better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, you know, Tracy, I think to, um, I think, I think we, that's what makes this so tough because again, just like it's hard for you to articulate that, um, we, we have to, and again, I'll, I'll refer back to my blog. I mean, I just talk about one particular, uh, piece of, of that stress that you have as a, as a black person here, and I talk about the code switching in particular in my blog and even how it manifests itself for me and how my hair looks. And I know that sounds so like, what really, but I've had more. We, we talked about that too. <laughs> yeah. Right. I've had more, more of my, my white colleagues. I read my blog post and like understanding are saying, I didn't understand. Like this is, these are all the things that you're thinking or, or how sad that you feel that you have to do these things or your parents felt like they had to teach you in this particular way to just survive, you know, mm-hmm. in that. And so I think the more that we can have these spaces of dialogue um, around race and relations, again, I'll always go back to starting in schools, but also in our neighborhoods, also, you know, in our um, communities and to be able to do it in the right way where people can listen and also where people can be heard. I think that is a critical piece of it. Um, I read in a, um, I read on, on Twitter, I'm trying to remember the person who, who said this, but um, their, their thoughts about this was to, if you're a white person and you're, you're uh, upset around these things that are happening, educate yourself around the history behind it without having to ask a black friend about it but educate yourself about it and then have conversations with other white people about, you know, what's going on or what you learned about it, because that's how you break those self-imposed bubbles um, mm-hmm. was what this particular person was saying. And I think that's, I think that's good advice. Um, I also think back to my parents and I was sharing with, with a friend that my parents went to all black, um, all black high schools, you know, they, they grew up during segregation and that as great as, as great as a basketball player as my dad was, he did it and he loved football. They didn't have a football team because it was an all black high school. And, uh, you know, understanding the less being able to share that experience uh, with a friend who was white about that and to be able to, you know, go further and talk about, you know, not only why that was so, but the impact that that had, I think is important. That's starting those conversations my mom um, was a teacher before segregation uh, ended. And when segregation, when desegregation uh, started, my mom left the teaching profession. She worked um, as a scientist for Exxon and because she just wasn't for desegregation, you know, that wasn't how she grew up and she didn't want to teach white kids. I mean, she came out and she told me this, like, I did not want to teach those little white kids, you know, because of the the education she received in her all black high school and um, an elementary school, it, the level of pride and all the things our black kids are dealing with now, they didn't have to deal with that. 
then, you know, the standard of excellence, my mom said, was much higher because you knew that you had to do well. And if you didn't, um, you know, your, your family, they were going to be part of your family knew your teachers knew your family and that they were going to, you know, talk to your mom or your dad and you're going to get in trouble again around that, you know? So my mom talks about that and how she feels that for our education system, our black kids really suffered because of desegregation because over 300,000 black teachers were out of a job when desegregation Mm -hmm. happened. And I think we're still feeling that void of not having those black educators there. Uh, Now my mom did come back to education And there was a particular family that she told me that really kind of gave her perspective and opened her eyes too. And she used, you know, music because she was a music teacher and choir director to bridge that gap, you know? Um, And we know how music and the arts can bridge gaps between all kinds of cultures and races. And so that was her eye opening experience uh, for her with that, with that family, um, those group of siblings when she went back into education. So I still feel that it starts and ends in schools, but especially now we have to have these conversations outside of school. We can't be scared to have the conversations because school may will be different in the fall and we'll be in a virtual setting on some platform. We still have to have these conversations with actionable items that people can engage in to make it better. And just because we're apart right now in COVID-19 does not mean that our administrators cannot address these situations with teachers, with their families at their school. I think as teachers, we would have so much respect if our principals would hit it head on and say, I see this, this is not okay. And open those doors for conversations. We received an email a couple of days ago from our superintendent, which gave me peace. Um, I, I was hoping that our superintendent would um, speak up on behalf of our school district. And she did an amazing job. Um, But I think we need to take it down to the school level more intimately where principals right now, in in my opinion, should be picking up the phone, calling their black teachers. Um, But, you know, if, if you're of any other ethnicity, you may be missing it and not even realize Mm-hmm. how we're feeling. But but the other thing I want to say about that too is this, I, I've said it before, but now I think you understand this is our every day. So this is not a right now situation. And mm-hmm. the only reason I say check on us is because so many people are reaching out and, oh my gosh, I didn't know, or this is a thing. And so we're overwhelmed. Um, we have headaches. Uh, we have tears. We have anger. We even have embarrassment for um, the poor choices and the ways people are rioting and not doing peaceful protests like Martin Luther King Jr., like Jesse Jackson, uh, peacefully fought so hard for Rosa Parks. We're those people who are rioting and destroying what generations of a family have built are completely doing a disservice to our forefathers um, on, on the foundation that they laid. We're tearing it apart. When we riot and we're violent, you are now the very thing that these people are scared of. You are, you are the problem too. So violence plus violence equals ignorance. There has to be um, a logical, peaceful, uh, solution. 
to this. So, and, you know, Tracy, I would just say too, even with the violence, because I know a lot has come out lately around and proof, hardcore proof. That's one thing you have to love about social media, right? Where it hasn't been, the violence hasn't been solely from just black people that are upset, but of other organizations that are trying to take advantage of this situation uh, because they know if they start the violence that blacks will be automatically accused of being the starters of it. And that happened right there in, in Nashville. I've, I've seen videos of that. And now, you know, our our government is recognizing that this is not what we thought it was, that we have outside forces with different agendas to cause chaos, right? To help perpetuate this false narrative of, of Black people being angry and violent all the time. Um, so mm-hmm. that is also very, I think that's, we need to make sure we, we are sharing that as well in these conversations mm-hmm. um, from the, you know, the, the different groups the, um, that want to see, that want to see us not get along. I mean, for lack of a better mm-hmm. phrase, you know, so it's a complex matter and we have to start, we have to start peeling back the layers of it, but it starts with knowing how we got there. I'm just a firm believer. You have to know where you come from and, and uh, everybody needs to arm themselves with that knowledge. We also can't assume our black kids know where they came from either and know their family history. So it goes, you know, it goes both ways. Um, It definitely goes both ways around that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Marlena, you mentioned a blog post that you're working on. There's actually a blog post that I'm working on as well. And it's the topic is very similar. Um, I'm hearing a lot about uh, people need to take action. We need to be proactive and not reactive. And so I keep hearing the word act, 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 act. Mm -hmm. So it prompted me to um, start doing a etymological search on the word act. And so far in my research, there are 1,165 words um, that have act in it. So Uh my blog post is to really highlight the various forms of the word act. Um, inactivate, inaction, deactivate, reaction, proactivity, mischaracterize, action, act, activated, distraction, retroactive, actionable. All of those words have a place in the conversations that we're having. So that's what my blog post is going to be about is to, to show everybody how actions, whether good or bad, um, have an effect on how we move forward. Mm-hmm. And, and so hopefully to just bring some awareness and change in that regard. Um, Marlena, we could, <laughs> we could really keep going. There's so much ground to cover. But I definitely think this was an extremely vulnerable conversation Mm-hmm. very transparent, very raw and naked from our hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like to thank you for being so honest and open. And, and we, we went, we went to where a lot of people are. Um, it's not easy to go. We did it. And so I hope more people will continue to, to go into these um, thickly wooded areas that are a little bit treacherous 
and that we can inspire change through these conversations. So Marlena, as we prepare to close, are there any final thoughts that you want to share? Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, if you're listening to this podcast and you are a, um, a person of color, I would just say that keep the faith, keep, stay hopeful and optimistic because this time was bound to happen. Um, we have always been on the precipice of another, in my opinion, civil rights movement, and we are here and we have the opportunity to be a part of what this next looks like in our country. So be hopeful, be optimistic, be encouraged, even through the anger and the hurt that you might be experiencing and find ways where you can be a part of the solution. If you are not a black person and you're listening to this podcast, educate yourself as to how we truly got here. Again, I mentioned it before and I'll mention it again. I think it's important that you arm yourselves and have have some of these uh, reflect, reflective moments internally before you ask your black friends around it because it is right now I would say, you know, and, and I would say that that's inclusive of me is that it's it's overwhelming right now what's happening because it's sparking other conversations that um, and feelings and incidents that we've had to deal with as black people. So arm yourselves with the right knowledge. Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility is a great place to start. Um, and also the second book that I would, would highly recommend is How to Be an Anti-Racist um, by Ibram uh, Kendi. That's another great book. Um, those two are actually the number one and number two books on Amazon right now because people are wanting to find out, like, how do I learn more about this? So continue to arm yourself with this information um, and then find out how you can be active. I know when I release my blog post, I'm going to give some ideas and suggestions, but you just it's not OK now to sit by the sidelines. Martin Luther King also talked about how silence uh, can be our greatest enemy when we see something wrong happening. So we all have to speak up. We all have to lock arms together and truly take advantage of this opportunity, take advantage of this opportunity to make our world a little better. Be the change, be inspired, be Be better. Friends, I'd like to thank you for joining us at Intelligogy, the podcast where we not only disrupt educational normalcy, we disrupt societal normalcy. So thank you for going with us where, thank you for going with us to a very hard place. If you have questions, um, you can reach out and 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 my email is tracy at tracybrowder.com. Um, we need to continue the conversation. This is not a time to pull your head, pull the covers over your head. So let's keep it going. And I do love what Marlena said. I have several friends who have told me that they are reading and learning and searching on their own. And we need that because that's how you have some self-awareness and revelational moments, not always through conversation, through literary engagement and processing internally. So we encourage you to do that. So again, we'd like to thank you for joining us. Marlena, thank you for being here with me today. I really, really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that, Tracy. Absolutely. Thank you. 